Think back to the last meeting you had. Did someone interrupt you? It's pretty frustrating, right? And you're totally justified in being annoyed. But it also turns out that interruptions have bigger consequences. This is Game Plan. Hi, I'm Rebecca Greenfield. And I'm Francesca Levy. And this week we're talking about the universal phenomenon of being interrupted while speaking at work. It happens to all of us and we all do it. I had to hold back from interrupting you just now while you were doing your introduction. (laughs) Yeah, I've learned um, that I am an interruptor. Well, first of all, I should say when we had a meeting to plan this episode, um, you, me, and one of our producers basically spent the whole meeting interrupting each other. (laughs) And we all acknowledge that, well, you and I acknowledge that we are kind of natural interrupters. It's part of our conversational cadence. Yeah, it's just um, certain family upbringings, I think, teach you that if you want to be heard, you have to interrupt which is an unfortunate truth maybe in meetings, but it's also part of like a vicious cycle of if you feel like you have to interrupt, then you're always interrupting and then people are getting interrupted and right. maybe we should learn how to have better public discourse. But I like to make myself feel better by thinking that when I interrupt, it's not so bad because I'm, I am still listening to somebody and I am interrupting because I'm like so enthused about what they're saying that I just want to interject my my approval or like my follow-up thought that's nice of you because i definitely do the thing where i'm just thinking of the brilliant thing i want to say and (laughs) i'm just so excited to say it i can't help myself sometimes sometimes. but maybe that means the other person you're talking to is not that interesting no (laughs) when that when when i get interrupted in a certain way it annoys me deeply and i i was thinking about this in preparation to talk about it with you and i think that what what bothers me more than somebody interrupting me in, let's say, a meeting is them interrupting me and then like my voice not getting heard because they interrupted me. So someone can interrupt you and then someone else can say like, oh, wait, back up. I want to hear the rest of what Francesca said. And it's just like it never happened. And I feel like that's a natural conversational thing that happens. But when someone interrupts you and then later says the exact same thing you said, but everyone else congratulates them for their insight or they just start talking about something else. And you're like, no, 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 we could have had this. We could have been having a different conversation if you had just let me finish. So it's, it's that feeling of not being heard, which it's not the interrupting itself. It's the interrupting. And then like the group dynamic supporting the interruption. And I think that piece of it is very, a little gendered or can be gendered. Um, We, I were thinking about talking about this because interruptions, of women in particular has been in the news so much recently. Yeah. With Senator Kamala Harris being interrupted. Mm -hmm. Um, Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. Of course, you know, the classic Taylor Swift being interrupted. Yeah. And it's harder for people to hear women in meetings. Just to prove that this isn't just us anecdotally complaining about our experiences in meetings, um, I will just point to some of the research. There was a really interesting study in 2014. These two linguists, they recruited 40 people to have conversations. And when there was men paired with women, they interrupted them on average 2.1 times. And when it was men and men, they only interrupted 1.8 times. Which, Ugh. <laughs> um, And then there's been research looking at the Senate and Supreme Court that both showed that women in these powerful groups also got interrupted more. It doesn't surprise me at all, but I also have a hard time understanding why people do it to women so much. I mean, years of socialization, Francesca. But the other frustrating thing is that 
when women or maybe anyone, when you try to push back and assert yourself, women also in particular get punished for that. We've talked about how, you know, when women try to speak up, we're seen as more aggressive or, I mean, there's a lot of research about how like women do things that are perceived as angry or incompetent when the exact same behavior by men is perceived as a leadership quality. Yeah. But, and also like, why wouldn't you've been, why wouldn't you be angry if you've been interrupted five times in a row? Like by the time you get to the point where you have to say like, guys, please quiet down and listen to me. Maybe you're right in having a slightly angry tone. There was a times article that solicited um, all these women who had said they'd been interrupted. And one of the women quoted in the article said that she had to wait until she was interrupted five times before bringing it up. Because if she did bring it up sooner than that, then people would get mad at her. It's like you're speaking out of turn if you just expect to be heard all the way through the first time you say something. Yeah, exactly. Getting interrupted isn't just annoying. I mean, it is annoying and frustrating. But by affecting who gets to speak in meetings and whose voice gets heard, it also impacts business decisions. And that's exactly what our guest today has written an entire book on. Chris Karpowitz is the co-director of the Center for the Study of Elections and Democracy at Brigham Young University. He also co-wrote with Tali Mendelberg, The Silent Sex, Gender, Deliberation, and Institutions. Thanks so much for coming on. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So what made you decide that you wanted to study the gender dynamics in group meetings? Well, I've been interested in how small groups make decisions together, how they talk about politics and how they make decisions together for quite a long time. And as Tali, my co-author, and I started talking about this project, we first sort of got into um, some findings by other scholars, and we noticed some very interesting gender dynamics, and that made us want to pursue this topic uh, further. And, and I think in addition to those scholarly reasons, just our own experiences as men and women in groups uh, made us fascinated by the dynamics of those groups and about how those groups come to decisions together and what happens when members of those groups uh, start talking together. Can you tell us about what some of those gender dynamics you discovered in the previous research were? Yeah, well, we found that first there were um, there appeared to be differences in the authority that men and women had within the groups. And, and that gets demonstrated in a variety of different ways, one of which is just the raw talk time of men and women. And we noticed some disparities there and we wanted to understand how changing different features of the group, like how many women or how many men are in the group or how they were asked to make decisions, whether through majority rule or unanimous consensus rule, how those features of the group affected what happened. And how exactly did you research that? One of the places we looked to try to figure out what was happening in these group settings was um, school board meetings from all across the country. And the interesting thing about school boards is that you actually get really interesting differences in gender composition across those boards. And so that was one place where we could look to see how, how does changing certain features of the group affect what happens within the group. 
And what did you find? Well, we found that it makes a big difference. So in the most common kind of group in politics today, so groups with more men than women that decide by majority rule, we found that women were far less likely to speak up than men. And when I say less likely, I mean not just less likely because there were fewer women in the group, but but less likely than we would expect given their lower numbers in the group. So, for example, we found in groups of five people with four men and one woman deciding on a topic together by majority rule, the women tended to take up about 10% or so of the conversation, even though they're 20% of the people in the room. So, so when we say that they're speaking up less, they're speaking up far less than we would expect given their numbers. They're already low numbers in the group. And so we found these really stark gender dynamics where increasing the number of women in the group really helped women to participate more fully but also changing other features of the group also mattered. So if we take that same group with one woman and four men, and we said, now decide by unanimous rule instead of by majority rule, that also helped the woman who was outnumbered to speak up a little more because unanimous rule sends the signal that everybody's vote matters and everybody's voice matters, therefore. Did you look into why it was that women didn't speak up as much? Well, we can get some clues about why that's the case. So one of the things we found was that um, going into these group sessions, before they'd even met the other members of the group or had any you know, big interaction together, we found that um, women were less likely than men to be confident that that they could be effective in the group setting. And, and we're not the only scholars who have found that. There are other scholars who have looked into this sense of efficacy or confidence have also found gender differences there. So, so one of the things that seems to be happening is that men and women, most likely because of their experiences outside any individual group, come into the group setting with different sets of expectations and, and different levels of confidence about their own authority and their own ability to make a difference in the group. Can you say more about those patterns of interruption that you mentioned? What are they and how can group dynamics change them? So we invited both students and members of the community to come in um, for a study about how people make decisions together. And then we told them that later in the lab session, they were going to make, they were going to have an opportunity to earn some money. And then we said, you get to decide together how you want to divide the money that is earned. And you can divide it however you want. So if you don't want to divide it at all, if you just want to let some people earn a lot more than others, that's fine. But you could also choose to, to, to redistribute it in some way among the group members. And so we asked them to talk about that question and to come up with a principle for redistributing the money that they would feel good about for their group and that they would feel good about applying to society more broadly. And so that's the conversation that they were having. As they were having that conversation, we recorded, we 
told them that we were recording it and we and we recorded very carefully what each person said and then we could go back and look at times in which people interrupted each other by an interruption we meant a time where somebody was talking and somebody else broke in um, and tried to say something else and one of the things we looked at was the fact that there are different kinds of interruptions so when you interrupt someone else that could either be a positive thing or a negative thing and by positive interruptions, we mean times when someone is talking and someone else breaks in to show support and solidarity. They might say something like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. And they're technically speaking over the other person, but they're doing it in a way that actually enhances the authority of the speaker. They're helping that speaker to feel good about what they're saying and to let them know, hey, people are listening to you and they want to hear more of what you're saying. But there are also negative interruptions. And by negative interruptions, we mean times when someone interrupts to say no or to take the floor and just start talking about something totally different. Um, that happens a lot in negative interruptions as well. And so we could look at the differences between these positive and negative interruptions. And one of the things we find is that as women become more authoritative and successful parts of the group, they're being interrupted in positive ways more often, and they're being interrupted by men less often in negative ways. So in groups where there are more women, or in groups where the group has to decide by consensus that rule where, you know, every voice matters, then women receive from men more positive feedback and less negative feedback. And that seems to be a really important um, dynamic because it's associated, those same groups where women are being interrupted more in, in more positive ways are also the groups where women are talking a little more. They're also the groups where women are um, saying things that are quite distinct and different from what men are saying. And they're the groups where women are seen as more influential and authoritative members of the group by themselves and by the other members of the group. That doesn't mean that men and women can't ever disagree about issues um, or shouldn't ever disagree. Um, it just means that really successful groups in the sense of women's authority are groups where there's a kind of underlying sense of rapport and support that even where they have um, differences of opinion, they're not interrupting each other in ways that sap the authority of the other members of the group. Yeah, it reminds me of the strategy that the women in the Obama administration used. They called it amplification. So when a woman made a point, another one would repeat it and give credit to the speaker as a way to kind of amplify each other's voices. Are there other things that women can do like that? The example of the Obama White House is a really great example um, of how women can um, develop strategies that enhance their authority and their ability to make a difference in decision making. So that notion of amplifying each other and helping the other members of the group recognize good ideas that women bring forward I think is, is, is just a terrific example of the kinds of things that can happen. For us, we were really looking at these two factors in our study. We were looking at these two factors. 
one, the decision rule that the group makes, and two, um, who's in the room. Um, and the good news is that we often have control over one or the other of those things. So if it's a group that is going to make decisions by majority rule, then one thing that um, people who care about women's participation and authority might do is find ways for more women to be part of that group. If that's not a possibility, if the group is meeting together and it's, and it's not a possibility to increase the number of women, you might, the group might, might think about how to change the way they make the decision. So groups have control over that too. They might say, well, let's have some rules by which we can be sure that everyone is participating successfully. Um, and so groups with few women might want to use consensus procedures more often. Now, there are some downsides to consensus procedures that can make it take longer to make decisions. It can be harder in some ways. But having group members think hard about the signals that they're sending to each other is a really important thing. One of my colleagues from graduate school said that in her sorority, they had a rule about um, sort of how to show positive feedback and they, they would snap, um, you know, if someone was saying something that they really liked. And that's kind of a silly example, but, um, but you can think of lots of ways where groups can be sensitive to the si signals that they're sending each other. Other groups I, I know use other kinds of rules, like um, um, a rule maybe where everybody has to talk m once before anybody talks twice. You know, uh, there, there are a variety of opportunities and ideas. And, and I think the key is for groups to be aware of what the typical dynamics are and to find ways creatively that send the signal that every member of the group matters and that everybody's voice matters. In, in small uh, decision-making groups like a school board or like a PTA committee or even a work team, it's really important for groups to think about these sorts of core core features of the group and how they're going to work together as a group. And the, the good news, as I said, is that groups have control over this. And there are reasons to care about that, those decision-making processes and who's at the meetings besides just wanting to be nicer to women, right? Like you have said that it affects the actual substance of the conversation. Absolutely. And I think this is the most important reason. Right. So when women have greater levels of authority and power within the group, when they speak up more often and articulate their opinions, they don't say the same things as men. So it's not just the case that, you know, the the the, the woman in the in the room is just going to repeat what the men have said. Women have have good ideas. I mean, that's kind of a, so straightforward and obvious, but it's true. And um, don't say the same things as men. That's not to say that women and men always say radically different things, that there's overlap there too, and there's diversity within both groups of men and women. But women don't say the same things as men. So you're adding, you're improving the conversation by adding new perspectives and new ideas. And second, um, in groups where women are empowered, the, the ultimate decisions were quite different. So remember, our groups were all about how the group would divide money that they earned. We found that in groups where women were more talkative and thus more empowered, um, 
more participatory and more empowered, that the group was much more generous to those who earned the least. So they were more concerned about the poor. Um, they were more concerned about those who didn't do as well. And there were other features of the conversation that were also different. But, but we think that's a pretty important thing when it comes to big decisions that we're making as a nation, we need the perspective of both men and women to be articulated fully. And we find that when that happens, groups make different kinds of decisions. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to us about this. Um, it was really interesting. I'm glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So Chris's research found that when women are empowered more to speak, different decisions get made. And it's interesting if you think about it in the context of all these companies that are trying to hire for diversity, because there's all this research that shows that it's good for the bottom lines of businesses. And if the people that you're hiring, if their voices aren't going to get heard in meetings, it really diminishes the effect of hiring them. Yeah. So, Sorry to interrupt. No, no. <laughs> but I liked that. His book points out that you're that as a person running a meeting um, or running a company, you should work hard to make sure that underrepresented groups get heard, not just to make them feel better, although that matters because you want to retain people and you want people to develop in their jobs, but because you're just going to have a different outcome. You're going to hear different kinds of perspectives if those less typically less heard people have a chance to speak up. Yeah. And he gave some examples for how to do that, although I'm not sure that they would quite work in a business world. Yeah. His consensus thing was really interesting. I mean, I liked the philosophy that if you just create a system where everyone has to be heard and has to be acknowledged in order to arrive at a decision, that's that's going to eliminate some of the kind of like natural jockeying for power in meetings. But a consensus decision making process sounds super long and exhausting <laughs> to me. Yeah, it, it's I can I can picture how it would go down in, in some of the meetings that I'm in every day that are already really long. And I can only imagine it making them twice as long. I wrote about this thing back before I worked here called it was a solution to brainstorming and how it was a similar problem and brainstorming the extroverts and the loudest people and the interrupters, their ideas get more heard more. And so they kind of outweigh the other ideas, which could still be good. So there were these researchers who said that you should do this thing, which has a terrible name called brain writing. Uh-huh. And that you should, people should write down all their ideas and then you talk about them in the yeah. meeting. Yeah, I love that. And we are, we should give some voice to the introverts who are not in the room since you and I are not introverts. <laughs> but yes, like you, there is a thing where the people who come off as the smart ones or the creative ones are happen to be the ones who have said the most in meetings. And that's typically not a measure of anything except how comfortable you are speaking up and interrupting other people. And introverts hate that. Um, and I like the idea. It sort of matches that consensus theory of of submitting your ideas ahead of time so that they get evaluated outside of the meeting. Like everybody has to read it, read them over. And then you come in and discuss everyone's idea. Um, it it eliminates, I think, some of that dynamic. Although if you're going to have meetings, you're always going to have people talking over each other. And, you know, th what we talked about earlier and what Chris talked about in the interview about women just kind of getting heard differently or not getting heard at all. 
I think is proof that it's up to the person running the meeting. Hmm. You know, as an individual, you can't help whether people are going to interrupt you and you can't help whether you're going to come off as sounding super angry if you object to getting interrupted. So I think it's just really important for people running meetings and running organizations to acknowledge that there's something more going on than just a regular conversation when people are interrupting and you have to kind of make sure everyone gets heard. And there are actually meetings like that. I wrote a lot about holacracy, which is an alternative management to the hierarchy situation that companies like Zappos use. And they have these very specific meetings and they're called tactical meetings. And I went to one and it's like everyone has a very specific role and it it definitely feels different than a meeting. But in some ways you are like, oh, this meeting has a purpose. It's what are the like what are the roles or what kind of roles? So they have this person who's the facilitator, who's the kind of the person you're talking about, and they run the meeting and they go through and ask each member if they have any tensions that need to be processed mm. and they go through it like that. And it's it's a whole process and there's a secretary and it's very structured. And is it like, do people trade off roles or are you no, always No, you're like, I'm the facilitator. Okay. So it's kind of like a personality type, I think, would want to do that. But I mean, it's extreme and holacracy definitely hasn't worked for some companies and has worked for others. But it is an alternative way to think about meaning so that every single person in the room does get to say something. Yeah, it does sound like the more structured the meeting, the more you can get around some of these problems. Like the, right. it almost sounds like the worst thing you can do is just invite everybody into the room for know, like a free for all. So fun. That's how we have our <laughs> podcast meetings. We do get derailed a lot, though. Yeah. And now it's time for Half Big Takes. Half Big Takes. You can always call in with your own Half Big Take at 212-617-0166. And this week we have a listener Half Big Take and he's responding to one of Francesca's Half Big Takes about how she thinks it's weird that people pose for pictures with a half hug. Hey ladies, love the show. Just got done listening to the Half Big Take around taking awkward pictures. Um, and I just want to chime in that I also really hate the like the one-armed half hug, and so I, when possible, try to do like the the lean into it. So instead of putting my arm around the other person and making it seem like we're doing a half embrace, I'll just kind of crane my neck over into their personal space, and usually they meet me halfway, and so there's this obvious like, oh, we are in each other's personal spaces. And this definitely is not normal, but at least we're a little more intimate than just kind of being put up to take a picture. And so I will avoid the, the awkward touching and, and back thing whenever possible. But I think it is possible to take a canned photo that looks a little more personal that doesn't involve all of the uh, how are we going to do this posing. Love the show. Uh, thank you for keeping up all the half-baked takes. And uh, we'll hopefully call you while I'm not sitting in my parking garage. I, I love this. I think this is I think this guy is a is a genius. Yeah. Great solution. It's like this sort of subtle mind control that he exercises just by moving his body in, <laughs> in a certain direction. I like that. He said people just tend to meet him halfway. It's like it's like there's a thing hypnotists do where they like grab your wrist or something and it like gets you it, it gets you catches you off guard enough that it sends you into a state of disorientation and makes you vulnerable to them. I think that's what he's doing. He's like moving his body in a way they don't expect. And then they're like, oh, weird. I guess I'm going to do the same thing and take the picture this way. And it works for him. He's a, he's a, an evil genius, I think. I'm just 
imagining him like the awkward of like him doing the head thing and somebody putting their arm around and be like, oh no, <laughs> oh, oh, okay, yeah. But it's yeah. I agree, too much touching. Yeah. All right, Francesca, what is your great idea that you just need to tell the world? Uh, everybody needs to know that the most evil person on the escalator is not, in fact, the person who stands on the left side of the elevator. Of, sorry. Is not the person who stands on the left side of the escalator instead of walking when obviously you should be standing to the right and walking to the left. It's the person directly behind that person who does nothing about it. So my firsthand experience of this is almost daily. I have an epic escalator ride uh, from our subway station outside, which is like 11 stories underground. And there's just this one narrow escalator that you can't avoid riding. And people are pretty good in general about standing to the right and walking to the left. And if you don't walk up the escalator, you're going to be on that escalator for like 45 to 55 minutes. So you really have to walk. And the person who stands on the left side of the escalator, it's like either they're just really oblivious and somehow they haven't noticed this really obvious rule or they're a total sociopath and they're just like a, a monster. But you, you, the person who stands behind them and doesn't tap them, like doesn't have the courage is just a coward. Like they're ruining it for everybody else. You're and so brave, Francesca. I I will always tap a person. Do you? I, I always do because I'm I'm not just responsible for me. There's all the people behind me waiting to walk up the escalator. That's right. And I've even tapped a person in front of me to tap the person in front of them. This is a good like history lesson. You know, we're not just yeah. doing it for ourselves. It's for yeah. our children and if our you, children's children. If you stand by and do nothing, <laughs> you are a part of the problem. Wow. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Becca, what is your deep thought that is probably not as deep as you think? <laughs> Mine is also work transit-ish related. It's about the elevator. Mm-hmm. So you know how you walk into an elevator as it's closing, the sensor goes off and it opens again? Yeah. I feel great remorse when this happens. I feel <laughs> so bad. You should. And I, But it's usually an accident or sometimes it's like there's one person in the elevator. Come on, let me up. I think everyone needs to feel as bad as I feel when that happens because I see a lot of totally chill people walking and messing up that elevator sensor. It's a big deal. So you're arguing not that you should feel less bad, but that everybody should feel bad yeah, when they everyone do Everyone should feel bad. They, they should, well, okay. Particularly in our office building when there's yeah. a bank of six or eight elevators and they come, one elevator comes like roughly every 0.5 seconds. So yeah. there's always another elevator close behind I know that there are some office buildings where this isn't the case and you basically have to like hurdle yourself into the elevator at the last possible moment. Otherwise, you'll be like 15 minutes later for work than you would have been. But that's not here. I think also I'm saying it's okay to do it as long as you feel as bad as I feel. (laughs) (laughs) The problem is not the person who reopens the elevator doors. It's that like extra five seconds that they stay open after you've yes, gotten yes, on because yes. then the load time for the whole el- elevator session. Yeah. And it's just like, feel yeah. bad about it. Okay. Yeah. And fundamentally you've lost like 10 seconds of your day right there. That's right. Think of all the productivity. I am. I appreciate it. And this has been half big takes. Half big takes. Thanks for listening to another episode of Game Plan. You can find me on Twitter at RZ Greenfield. And I'm at Francesca Today. Please tweet at us with your half-baked takes or any other thoughts. You can also call and leave us a voicemail at 212-617-0166. 
If you like this show, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review and subscribe. We got a new one recently and I cannot tell you it made my day. We love reading your reviews. This show was produced by Liz Smith and Magnus Hendrickson. Head of podcast is Alec McCabe. We'll see you next week. Bye. Something terribly intelligent to say, and I'm going to carry on saying it for the next 15 to 25 Mm -hmm. minutes. All right. Can we just? We can.